Hello, I'm David Mosgrob. Welcome to Open to Debate. Foreign policy might not win elections, but it shapes domestic politics and the world. Recent months has seen external affairs intersect with internal affairs, hitting the headlines and shaping the country's agenda. Foreign electoral interference has been top of mind for quite some time, and India's alleged assassination of a Canadian on Canadian soil has grabbed even more attention. Then, during an address from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, the House of Commons welcomed and celebrated a Second World War veteran who fought for a Nazi division in Ukraine. Unmoored, unmade, underspecified, underfunded. There are lots of ways to describe this country's approach to managing relations with the rest of the world, but we go even deeper and drill down on this episode, asking a discouraging yet essential question. Does Canada have a foreign policy? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Graham Thompson, Senior Analyst, Global Macro Geopolitics at Eurasia Group. Let's start by defining the parameters of this this discussion a bit, because quote-unquote foreign policy is a big umbrella, and then we can narrow down our focus. But when we talk foreign policy, we might be talking diplomacy, grand geopolitics, security, defense, trade, development, migration, climate change, and the environment. There's plenty. Am I missing anything there? Are there elements of foreign policy that, that, that lurk somewhere that we don't think about? No, I think you've got the big pieces there. Um, it. When we think about foreign, you might use the term foreign and defense or foreign and security policy, but it definitely, we're talking essentially the way that a state relates to other states in the international arena and the themes or issues that might come up in those relations can run the gamut that you, that you just outlined. It can be defense, it can be trade, it can be diplomacy, um, international development. Uh, is a big factor, increasingly climate, which which falls in the sort of multilateral relations bucket. But the, the one thing I would add is that foreign policy tends to be an expression of the domestic political reality of, of the country. The, there was for a long time in scholarly works this idea that you could somehow separate foreign and domestic policy. And I think that's uh, it's quite untenable, really. Um, the, the personality of a state in the international system necessarily reflects, to a greater or lesser degree, its domestic political system and priorities. And I think that that's an important thing to, to stress in this context. Yeah, we're, we're definitely going to come back to that as we go, because th- that is always an important consideration to keep in mind. And at the moment, it seems particularly important for reasons that we'll get into. Uh, First, I want to start at the top and then start to work down. Uh, Does Canada have a coherent strategy with attendant goals that connects those elements of foreign policy? Because I've been thinking about this for some time. We've talked about it before. I'm trying to understand in some what we are doing here, because there's a lot of days where there appears to be no there there. I'm afraid I have to agree with that. I should say first that I think that that is not a reflection of the people in the Canadian civil service who work on foreign policy issues. We have, uh, Canada has a really solid civil servant 
and foreign service officers, um, military professionals at, at DND, at, at trade commissioners posted around the world who do really incredible work. And the fact that I don't think Canada has an overarching strategy linking the different parts of its foreign policy together doesn't take away from the professionalism of those people. Um, but I think it is true to say that Canada struggles to articulate an overarching framework for advancing its interests in the international arena. And you often hear about Canada wanting to, you might say that we, we want to advance and defend our interests and values, but it kind of begs the question to, to what end? Um, what kind of outcomes are you hoping to achieve? What does the world look like? How is it different if you get your way or you exert influence? Often um, there's a, there seems to be an emphasis on means rather than on ends, that the end game of foreign policy is somehow to exert influence. But that's, it, it begs the question in the philosophical sense. The conclusion is, is contained in the premises of the, the question. What the, the point of foreign policy is to achieve something, and you use your influence to some end. It's not just enough to say, we want to exert our influence, we want to have a say. You you have that for a particular purpose. And that's why I would I would say there are two arguments around what's, what's kind of grandly uh, or... Uh, Ironically, grandly, or a, a scholar that I that I know has, has referred to grandiose strategy. So there's an argument that only big countries, only great powers, can really do grand strategy. But there's another argument that says any country or any real organization can do grand strategy because all that refers to is having big picture goals of what you want to achieve and aligning your limited means with trying the best way to achieve those ends. And if we think about it in those terms, I think it's very hard to say that Canada has a strategy. It's clear that there are a lot of moving pieces, that there are certain foreign policy priorities, that there are defense priorities, there are trade priorities. There's a whole bunch of stuff happening, but it's not always, it's not clear to me that there is an underlying sort of way of calibrating how those all link up and what they are as a whole oriented to trying to achieve in the world. And I think that that points to a number of problems and deficiencies in the way that Canada and Canadian policymakers conceive of foreign policy, but that would be the, the starting point. Is It's almost, it's a bit, like more, it's a it's reactive the way that Canada approaches foreign policy. It's a well, bit well, like playing the the old carnival game of whack a mole, where a problem comes up and we have to have a position, and then another c problem comes up and the government has to articulate its position. It has to respond, but it's in that sense reactive and moving from one issue to another. And in the absence of that overarching strategic framework, it's very hard to determine. What is important to you and what is not? Because you're kind of trying to be present at every, for everything. And 
if you have if everything is a priority, then nothing is a priority. And I think that's the fundamental issue with trying to have a, a strategy in anything, but particularly in foreign policies. It helps you determine where you should focus your attention and where not. And otherwise, you kind of run around like a you know, a chicken with its head cut off. Yeah, and there are indications beyond you know, uh, general assessments of this problem, right? There, Canada hasn't done a proper review of its national security and foreign policy in some time, right? The, the, the lack of strategic direction seems to be, in part, an effect of us genuinely not sitting down to articulate one. And it makes me wonder to what extent uh, this government has has either deprioritized it or has not put the right people in the senior positions to figure it out. And so, I mean, what are the what are the deeper indicators that we're not taking this seriously beyond the fact that anyone looking at the news of the day can can kind of discern it just from from the headlines, not not to mention the the stories themselves. Well, you mentioned two really good ones. Um, it has been, I believe, I'm right in saying it's not since 2004 that the government of Canada has released a, an updated national security policy. And in 2005, that they completed a formal review of the overarching foreign policy objectives of the government. And that is almost 20 years ago at this point. The world looks very different from the way it looked to then. It was in the aftermath of September 11th and the war in Iraq. And a number of a broadly overarching system of American power in the world that shaped the reality that Ottawa was working in that no longer really corresponds to the world that we live in. And so those strategy documents are important, first from the, the, the point of view of being an intellectual and analytical exercise, and then second, by putting that down on paper policymakers, foreign governments, observers have something to go to that lays out in what should be relatively clear terms what the government thinks is important and how it thinks it's going to manage those issues or address those problems or achieve certain ends. And I know that there is a live debate in the foreign policy community such as it is in Ottawa about whether a for, whether a formal foreign policy review should be undertaken, uh, we don't maybe need to go into the details of those of those arguments just now. But it's, I suppose on the one hand, very briefly, some people would say, "Well, that's it's a lot of bureaucratic energy that goes into doing something like that." When the reality is, what we need to do is get on with it. But I think the other side of is more aligned with what I've just said, which is that it provides a, a an intellectual and analytical framework to orient something as massive as a state in its relations with the world. And just as a point of comparison, I think, you know, the Canadians understandably are constantly comparing themselves to the United, the United States. But in this context, I think that is not the right comparison. The U.S. is far larger and more powerful than Canada with interests and, and a state apparatus to go with that, which completely dwarfs what, what Canada is capable of doing. But 
a good couple of comparisons would be the United Kingdom and Australia. And I think it was 2017 that Australia did a, its most recent foreign policy white paper. And there are already arguments and have been for a few years that the Australian government should update that strategy, that policy document. And in the UK, they published what is called the Integrated Review, um, which covers foreign policy, security, defense, uh, international development, I believe. They published that initially, I think, in 2021. And it's already been refreshed in light of the war in Ukraine and, and other things that have happened in the last couple of years. And it's just striking that in two of Canada's closest allies and relatively comparable um, societies and, and foreign policy actors to some degree, that, that they have both done that legwork more recently and are already updating those documents when Canada hasn't even hasn't even reviewed, as it were, the stuff that it put to paper almost 20 years ago. I want to come back to that in a minute. First, I want to go back to the United States very briefly, because I think there's a perception that I suspect to some degree is true that some of the foreign policy laziness or lack of direction on Canada's part is that when it comes to a number of areas, including particularly security policy, Canada swims in the wake of the United States, that it's sort of stuck, for better or for worse, following those goals and, and ending up under the aegis of, of the Americans. Um, but that comes with its own tensions. I think about our relationships with China, India, Saudi Arabia. The Biden administration has an interest now in managing these relationships in particular ways that may put pressure on Canada. We saw this with Meng Wanzhou and the, the kidnapping of, of the two Michaels when the U.S. wanted us to extradite, uh, to, to arrest and ultimately extradite her. We're seeing some of that tension now with India, where Canada doesn't want India running around doing extrajudicial assassinations on its territories, but the United States wants to counterbalance China. So, you know, how does Canada manage that relationship with the United States when it has its own goals that perhaps are inconsistent or at least in tension with American goals? Yeah, I mean, it, it goes to that point about, uh, I think that um, Trudeau Pair made about sleeping with an elephant, right? Everything that the elephant does, no matter how benign, uh, affects you in a really significant way. I think if you pull back, you know, at the baseline, what, what puts the geo in geopolitics is geography. And the reality is that Canada has one neighbor, which is the United States, with, with whom it has a very intimate, close, beneficial relationship, but which is dwarfed Canada and, uh, on all measures, and then is surrounded on all three sides by ocean. So with the exception of the United States, Canada is very far removed from a lot of the problems of the world. It was said in the 1920s, after the First World War, during the period of uh, so-called isolationism in North America, that um, Canada lives in a fireproof house, far from inflammable material, right? So we could, as Canadians, really just draw back from the world and focus primarily and above all on the relationship with the United States. And there's no question that Canadian foreign policy 
necessarily has to focus on that relationship more than anything else. Everything else is absolutely a second or third order issue compared to the relationship with the United States. And to give Canadian foreign policy its due, relations with the United States are probably the thing that Canada does better than anyone else in the world, partly because of proximity and shared culture and mutual understanding. Um, Canadian policymakers watch the same sports as their American counterparts and travel to the United States and have family in the United States. So understand on an intimate level American culture um, from an arm's length position. Um, but also what Canada does, which is unique, I think, for, for most countries, is it knows better than anyone else, I think it's fair to say, where the, Ameri where the United States pressure points are. And by this, I mean, if you're a, a European or Asian or whatever other country you want, and you think that you want to push some policy or respond to something happening in Washington, it, it may strike you that it's enough to raise it with the president. But the fact is that the president, although very powerful in foreign policy, responds to congressional practice. There are very powerful um, Senators, for instance, and committees on Capitol Hill. Uh, and of course, the United States is a highly decentralized federation. So state governors have an awful lot of sway. And Canada is very good at knowing who on Capitol Hill is a friend of Canadian interest or who could be brought to bear in those interests. So let's say, just as an example, if you're negotiating a trade agreement with Washington, and things are getting a bit messy, and you're able to call up the senator from Iowa and point out, remind that person that Canada is that state's largest trading partner. Um, it also helps in a similar dynamic to have, for instance, the premier of Ontario or British Columbia call up the governor of Michigan or the governor of Washington state and remind that person that this trading relationship is so important. And that ends up feeding its way through the U.S. system to put pressure on uh, all the way up to the administration. And that is something that Canadians and Canadian foreign policy does extraordinarily well. But it is the case that because we're overwhelmingly as Canadians, as, as Canadian foreign policy makers, dependent on the United States, that we have limited freedom of movement, uh, freedom of action in, in instances where if something particularly on national security is a major priority for the United States, it is very hard for Canada to, to move out of the wake of that. Whether or not it would, would be a good idea setting that aside, it's a very difficult thing to do. There would be costs to pay. So... I think that one of the things that one learns from thinking historically about Canadian foreign policy is, which, which I, I would love to go on a tangent about how we don't do that enough. I'm, I'm very happy to park that for the moment, but there are some continuities in Canadian foreign policy and Canadian interests. Obviously one going back to the domestic politics is about national unity. And sometimes there are, points in foreign policy that divide particularly English and French-speaking Canadians, often to do with involvement in foreign wars, maybe led by the United States, and that's something that Canadians have to manage. 
Another is this trying to have an independent voice and perspective in international affairs. You've seen this as a thread throughout Canadian history that we're not just um, an adjacent to the U.S. or previously uh, to Britain, that U.S. relations and trade are always going to be the primary thing that we have to look out for, but at the same time, to an extent greater than I think is the case in the United States and for historical reasons, Canada has always viewed itself as part of a broader international community to which it has obligations. And trying to, it's not triangulated because it's got four four corners, but trying to navigate that, uh, those four different um, factors or priorities, you know, that it necessarily involves trade-offs and you can't always do, um, you can't always in policy of any kind, politics is, is about trade-offs and, and, you know, least bad outcomes. And foreign policy, when, when viewed in a sort of clear-eyed way, um, is very much about those trade-offs. And for Canada, the primary thing to navigate in most cases is the trade-off of being a, as closely aligned with the United States as Ottawa is and yet, having Canada having its own priorities and interests. Yeah, and I mean, I don't want to erase the fact that we are a member of a number of multilateral bodies and organizations, the Francophonie, the Commonwealth, so on and so forth. We do this. In fact, this is part of the problem. Is we do a little bit of everything. We try to do a little bit of everything, spread ourselves awfully thin. Going all in on the United States and being good at it especially being able to work the subnational units really pays off when you have to renegotiate NAFTA with Donald Trump, right? I mean, it, it, there is a there is a capacity there that's remarkable. And yet, as we record today, September 26th, there, there's a perception that I share that Canada has reached a foreign policy low point, at least in recent memory. And there's India's assassination of a Canadian on a Canadian soil. There's the welcoming of a man who fought for the Nazis to Parliament. And now Poland, a minister in Poland, is talking about extraditing this 98-year-old. Uh, there's the delayed and unsteady launch of an inquiry into foreign interference. There's being shut out of AUKUS. Uh, there's being criticized by NATO members, although this is this is evergreen, as uh, you know, insufficiently spending on defense, and, and plenty more. If we go back to 2015... We could go back even further the Harper years, but for the sake of, of brevity, you go back to 2015. How did we end up here? I mean, the 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 the, the Nazi welcoming to Parliament the episode, notwithstanding. I mean, that that could have happened under any government, which the Speaker wasn't doing their due diligence. But that low point. How do we reach that? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and I would emphasize just to sort of as an element of throat clearing that there has been a decades long and bipartisan lack of leadership and investment in foreign and defense policy. And I think that's point final. From 2015, I think that one major factor to bear in mind is that the world again, looks very different today in 2023 from what it looked like in 2015. This was, although post-financial crisis, post-Iraq, 
and you started, you were already seeing some inclining of um, the way that the world was changing. This was a pre-Donald Trump presidency period. This was uh, prior to the pandemic. This was prior to the full-scale invasion of Ukraine, although, you know, hasten to add that Russia had uh, had in fact invaded Ukraine in 2014 and annexed Crimea and paid a relatively small price for that. But I think it's fair to say that when the current government of Justin Trudeau came to power in 2015, it had not yet registered just how much or how quickly the world was changing. And the way that Canadians and Canadian foreign policymakers have seen the world for decades, frankly, has been quite in a quite a benign context for Canadian foreign policy, where in from the United States through all the way back to you know the late 19th century when the United Kingdom was the world's leading power, and we have essentially had a privileged relationship with the world's leading power that was culturally very similar to Canada and which shared many of the same interests and values in terms of a broadly liberal, with major caveats and exceptions, of course, but a broadly liberal approach to the world. And it's clear today that that era of sort of liberal hegemony, if not dead, is very much dying. It seems to be, I would phrase this as we are in a kind of transition period in the global order, where it's clear that the nails are in the coffin for what came before, but it's not yet totally clear what is emerging. And that's a really difficult situation for policymakers to be in. But if you did come to power in 2015, the world was just not quite as serious. There was potentially more room for um, emphasis on soft power, for instance, uh, as opposed to hard power. Um, Things were broadly proceeding in a more liberal direction in terms of trade. Uh, development indicators were improving. Um, I think in a situation like that, where the where the world seems, on the whole, a, a relatively navigable place, not so bad from the point of view of of Canadian interests, is easy to to indulge in what in retrospect perhaps is is less serious types of uh, rhetoric and policy. And I think that you, I think that's part of what I would, I think that's how I would frame Canadian foreign policy since 2015 is that the world has changed and that Canada has been very slow and the government has been very slow to react and change with it. And the other thing I think I would add is that it, you know, not not my not my bailiwick, as they say exactly. But I do wonder to what extent in 2015 um, the Liberals had really done deep thinking about what they wanted to do internationally. We have to remember that they were a third party. They just had a really uh, terrible election prior to that. Justin Trudeau came to power talking about Canada is back, which has aged incredibly poorly. And, and seems very self-indulgent now in retrospect. And so I think the world has changed, number one, in ways that make it 
more hostile to Canadian interests and more difficult to navigate on the one hand. And the second point is I don't think that there was a huge amount of big picture strategic thinking that went along with any kind of foreign policy agenda. And then to give, to, to be fair to the government, they got completely sideswiped by the election of Donald Trump and having to renegotiate NAFTA. And all of a sudden now we're off to the races in terms of events taking over and that reactiveness that we, that we talked about at the beginning. So it might not be the most, um, most satisfying answer. I don't think that I want to be partisan in any way in, in, casting blame around, but a few things have happened in the intervening years that have shone a really negative light on how Canada approaches its foreign policy. Yeah, the, the point about events is awfully important uh, because if you have a strategy, you can respond to events consistently or try to consistently with your strategy. It guides what you, how you respond to events and how you wish to shape them. In the absence of a strategy, you just seem to be doing things on the fly. <laughs> and it's not that Canada doesn't have deep foreign policy commitments. We have a trade deal with ASEAN uh, that we've been working on for some time. We are all in on Ukraine. That's it's very, very clear. So, you know, free trade with the United States, we've worked, as you mentioned, very, very hard to maintain free trade with the United States and so on. So, you know, there, there is something to be said that about some commitments, but as we mentioned earlier, the coherent strategy does that seems to be lacking, and accordingly, the responding to events seems to be uh, coming from a, a discombobulated government. Can this government come up with a coherent strategy? Uh, as is, is it going to take a change in government or a change in prime minister to do it? Because you'd think by now they would have responded, or or is this moment a wake up call? Because I, I, as significant as it is, the government seems to think its re-election depends on housing and affordability, not on foreign policy. As you mentioned earlier, foreign policy is is bound up with domestic policy. So can can this government get it done? A couple of thing, ways that I would respond to that. I think the first is to say that they're not wrong to think that if their priority is re-election, that focusing on foreign policy doesn't get them very far. It's a cliche for a reason that elections are not won on the basis of foreign policy. That said, I think it is true that a perception has taken hold that the government and the prime minister are not, um, to put it mild, mildly, um, responsible stewards of Canadian foreign policy. And when you don't have a strategy, which again, as, as I mentioned, this is about determining what is a priority and what is not, what is important and what is not, then you are really at the mercy of events. And whether or not this particular government can reorient, I have my doubts. They are getting to be quite long in the tooth when it comes to um, government duration. As far as Canada goes, they have been in power for eight years now, going on nine years. That's quite a long time. They've lost a few key members. Governments tend to die of old age and they run into problems of inertia and it's very hard to recover from that once it sets in. That said, I'm not sure that a simple change in government really 
solves the problem because ultimately this is coming down to some really hard decisions that have to be made at almost a structural level of Canadian policymaking in terms of what is important and why. And on the foreign policy side, this has to do with, uh, for instance, diplomatic representation and priorities around the world. You simply cannot be everywhere all the time without funding that vision. And what Canada has struggled to do, both thematically and regionally from a foreign policy point of view, is to allocate resources to priority areas. Um, what I mean by this is to say, by, com by, by way of comparison, for instance, Australia focuses very much on its own region. It's, it's sort of Southeast Asian backyard, and it prioritizes a very serious level of military spending, in part because of its geographic and geopolitical circumstances. Canada, on the other hand, as, as, as was said, we, we live in a fireproof house, far from inflammable materials. Although I, I hasten to add, maybe we can get to this, that the United States is looking considerably more flammable. And this may be an a, a situation where if that goes wrong for Canada, then it could really go wrong. And Canada, we don't really have a great backup plan for that. But what I mean to say is, if you're a Canadian policymaker, you know, okay, the United States is priority number one, but we also should have a presence in the Americas because it's our hemisphere. We need to invest in those relationships. We also it have to be in Europe because, you know, more than just diplomats, you shouldn't even really say diplomats, political leaders, perhaps. It's really nice to go to a multilateral meeting in Brussels or London or Paris. It's not that taxing. Um, but Europe is, is less important than it used to be. So we need to have coverage in Asia and China and India, but we also need to be present in Africa because of the historic links with the Francophonie and the Commonwealth and our development um, development commitment. And all of a sudden you see that you've, you've just brought the entire world into the sphere of Canadian foreign policy. And yet, if you're not willing to prioritize and say one region is more important than another, then you need to fund that policy in a, uh, that global approach. And this came up, I think it's fair to say, when Canada lost the last two times that it ran for the United Nations Security Council for a temporary seat, that all of a sudden, when it came down to voting in the General Assembly, about a year before the vote, Can Canadian policymakers, Canadian leaders, determined that all of a sudden Africa was important and started sending uh, foreign ministers or the governor general or whoever to these two African countries. And the African leaders quite reasonably said, hey, thanks for showing up, but where have you been? Um, there's, a, there's a disjuncture between the rhetoric of Canadian interest and presence in the world and the actual funding that, that goes to back it up. So I think it's really hard to see without making quite fundamental and structural decisions about foreign policy priorities, how any Canadian government will reset um, their policy toward the world. And we have that, that's leaving aside entirely the question of defense spending and commitment to, say, NATO or um, what kind of 
ships or planes or whatever that, that Canada needs. That's, that's purely just to be focusing on the diplomatic side of the question. What should the strategy be then? So we, we talked about deploying scarce or let's say limited resources and or growing those resources, which would be a strategic choice. So it takes some mm-hmm. time. But uh, I'm curious, and, and incidentally, a support network uh, that we've discussed before, think tanks, NGOs, so on. But given the current resources, what should the strategy be? Because it, it seems like uh, we, it's not like the 90s when we're all in on, on the right to protect. It's it, 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 the post 9-11 world was we saw the rise in securitization of every last bit of the globe. Now we're seeing a, a Western push to counterbound, counterbalance China, which we're being drawn into whether we like it or not. Uh, we seem to be pursuing free trade deals to the extent that it's possible. Uh, one of them on hold now for for reasons we can understand, the, the India deal. Um, what's the next step towards the to, towards a coherent strategy and what should it look like? Well, fortunately, that's well above my pay grade. No, there's no pressure. <laughs> but I can give you a couple of answers sort of off the top. Um, one thing that I think in the in the world in which to which we are, traveling. Given Canada's enormous, again, the three oceans that we're talking about, the geo and geopolitics, we have the, I think it's, I think it's accurate to say it is the longest coastline in the world. Most of that is very remote, including in the Arctic, where, as we know, the ice cap is melting at an increasingly alarming rate related to climate change. And that, that, brings, that brings two factors into play. One is that the North is going to be increasingly navigable by other powers. Russia is obviously up there. China has declared itself to be a quote-unquote near-Arctic state, which is meaningless, except <laughs> that it seems, it seems to imply that it thinks it has interest in the Arctic. The United States, of course, is there. We're members of the Arctic Council of Canada. And yet, the Canadian military presence in the Arctic um, is is really quite pathetic, considering that we have the second largest Arctic um, territory in the world. First of all, that is a problem because Canada is not up there simply showing the flag. It's a bit of a use it, not use it or lose it exactly, because no one's likely to take the territory. But... Um, otherwise, we rely entirely on the United States to defend Canadian territory and to control or survey uh, whoever is going through those Arctic waters, which puts Canada in the position of a protectorate, right? Or really a, a colony, which might be fine. We could entirely outsource to the United States that, um, that capacity. Somebody could decide that. Uh, but for Canadian self-respect, I think there's a, there's a logic there. And the second part of this um, melting ice cap issue, one, you, you've got more activity up there from foreign powers, including those uh, mentioned who are not uh, friends of Canada. The second is that for the energy transition, we've signed on to a whole bunch of economic uh, agreements to supply critical minerals to the United States and allied countries in this 
um, transition to electric vehicles, uh, making batteries, all of these things that in the last couple of years, there's been a real emphasis on coming online to, to be a huge contributor to the energy transition. So all, those minerals, uh, the mineral wealth of the Arctic is enormous, and we don't have an all-season icebreaker as Canada. So if you were thinking about where to allocate scarce resources for defense, you know, this talk about should we spend 2% or not is a little bit beside the point. The question is, to what end should you spend yeah. the money? Why yeah. should you be spending it? Canada has this giant Arctic coastline. Frankly, it needs naval capacity and airlift capacity and surveillance capacity in the far north. So number one, that's a long answer, is the Arctic. The second place I would prioritize, as we've just said, you know, we're Canada is highly dependent on the United States economically, uh, for security, uh, culturally. There's no getting around that. The problem, as much as it pains me to say it, is patently obvious to anybody, is that the U.S. politics are not in a good way. And there are risks associated with having so many eggs in that American basket, particularly if, a, if an unfavorable uh, and volatile and mercurial president, who shall remain nameless, might return to the White House. So what does Canada do in that scenario, which is, I don't know if it's the base case or not, it's not my, my job to judge whether... Um, Biden or someone else is likely to be president after 2024. But you, Canadian, Canada, Canadian policymakers better be ready to deal with um, volatility, uncertainty, and, and sort of negative outcomes coming from the United States as far as Canadian interests are concerned. And so managing that and hedging to some degree, I don't know even if that's possible, frankly, for, for Canada, how much it can hedge um, volatility in the United States. But I would be focusing on that and thinking really hard about what to do. And the third, the obvious, you know, the, the dragon and the elephant in the room is Asia. That is, most of the population of the world live in South, Southeast and East Asia. Uh, most of the economic growth that is going to be forthcoming in the next decade is going to be in Asia. Uh, Canada has historic allies and partners in the region, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, South Korea, Singapore. Um, India, obviously, is now a, a much more complicated relationship, but it goes to the point about the people-to-people -people ties that Canada has in Asia. The level of Asia literacy in Canada and Canadian foreign policy circles needs to increase. Those are, I think things are best done in threes. Those would be the priorities that I would emphasize. The Arctic, managing the United States, and it potentially going off the rails to some degree, and focusing on Asia, because that is where, as of right now, the future is being made. And there is a Canadian attempt. I mean, there's some chatter in a few pieces about this, how Canada is gaming out an American turn to the far right. Presumably that includes a, a return to Trump. So it seems to be something on the radar. But again, as you sort of indicate, well, you know, what what exactly do you do with that? You, you, how do you turn the whole country around on a dime on the right, off chance that Donald Trump wins again? Right. I mean, I, yeah. Wait, Canada, just on the trade thing, Canada has not had, it has been at least 100 years 
since Canada had a trading partner that even came close on any measure um, to the United States. And that was when Canada was part of the British Empire and foreign direct investment came from London and our exports went to uh, the UK. And now that is that is just not where we are anymore. And the overwhelming dependence on the U.S. is a double-edged sword. We send something like almost 80% of Canadian exports to the U.S., the largest source of foreign investment. Um, how much you can diversify that? It's been a long-running question about diversifying Canadian trade, but it seems to run up against the realities of geography and of, of the north-south orientation of the North American economy. That is a wicked problem to solve. I do not envy the people whose job it is to manage it, but it is something that should be given uh, very serious thought. And thought, again, in the context of a broader approach to the world, thinking about how to navigate this global environment that is less favorable to Canadian values and interests than it has been certainly in either of our lifetimes, but but I think it's fair to say much further back than that as well. Well, I know some of the people who think about these things and shape these things listen to this, so I hope they they appreciate that we understand the dilemmas they face, but uh, also recognize that we have serious challenges to to sort out that's going to involve making choices. Choices that we can't make here today because we've run out of time, but we give it a we give it our all, and I appreciate <laughs> you joining me here today uh, to do just that. Thank you, David. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We've only really scratched the surface, so uh, you know this this conversation will be continued. I'm sure. I hope so. We'll bring the shovels next time, and we'll we'll dig in. Uh, in until then, though, my thanks go to you, to Carolyn Smith, to Ross Clark, to Aisha Jar who make the show not just possible but infinitely better than it would be without them and of course to everyone who's listening uh stay safe stay engaged try to stay offline as much as possible you go enjoy the dying days of well i guess the early days of fall the dying days of takeable weather and we'll see you back here in two weeks <laughs>